As of Thursday afternoon, nearly a million of the state's 8.1 million registered voters have cast ballots so far in Illinois through vote-by-mail and early voting. And despite politicized narratives, the real answer about whether or not Chicago is safe depends largely on where you are in the city. The the most dangerous parts of Chicago are getting more dangerous. I'll talk with Crane's contributor Steve Hendershot, who recently dug into the data and reported for Crane's forum about how safety in Chicago is not evenly distributed and why. There's an immediate sort of red flag that goes up that more arrests does not necessarily translate to a safer city. But something that does seem correlative is police presence. You know, if they are around and visible in the community, ideally not always arresting people because, you know, those (laughs) offenses aren't happening, but that translates to good outcomes. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, November 7th. At Wintrust Community Banks, you're more than just another account number. No matter your stage of life, Wintrust's dependable bankers are as dedicated to your financial success as you are. After three decades of serving communities across Chicagoland, Wintrust has built its reputation on exceptional customer satisfaction and a strong local presence. That's why Wintrust is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in retail banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. Visit Wintrust.com slash J.D. Power to learn more about Wintrust's award-winning banking experience. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2022 award information, visit J.D power.com slash awards. So how safe is Chicago? Well, the answer changes depending on where you are. I'm joined now by Crane's contributor, Steve Hendershot, who recently reported about the inequality of safety in Chicago for Crane's Forum. Steve, welcome. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, So tell me about your approach to the reporting that you did for Crane's Forum. Yeah, just getting the assignment at this particular time with the gubernatorial campaign and all of the, you know, Darren Bailey's hellhole comment and the McDonald's CEO, it just, it seemed so fraught and sort of prone to value judgment that I, I went in wanting to back away from all of that and look at data to the extent that we can look at this objectively, you know, how safe is Chicago to the extent that it's unsafe, what's driving that. And Fortunately, Chicago is great. Its data transparency is fantastic. There's a reason why lots of national outlets will turn to Chicago as their exemplar for crime and safety stories because thanks both to the city's commitment and to the existence of the University of Chicago Crime Lab, we just have comprehensive, publicly available, easily sortable data. And it was a a huge asset and made for a really interesting reporting process for me. Yeah, I'm sure. And I'm glad you kind of led with that because I always say there's the crime and then there's perception of crime. And those those can be totally different things, right? The, the narrative can always be something very, very different. And you noted in the reporting that you did the increasing divergence between the North and West side. And I think the phrase you used was that it creates a dissonant backdrop for this this ideological debate that that's going around Chicago. Tell me about that and and how that data shakes out by region of the city. Yeah. And- I'll I'll even take a step back and put this in multi-city perspective for a second, because one of the things that UFC had done is this more than century long track where you can see Chicago 
not necessarily having the same homicide level as New York and LA, but you know, when one of those cities tracked up or tracked down in a given year or five year period, so did the others. So Chicago does that steadily until you know the middle of the first decade of the 2000s, and then we arc up a little bit. To your question about violence concentration, another thing there is as far back, I didn't go back to the 1890s for the sort of precinct by precinct or district by district looks, but not only did our overall homicide rate, and I can talk in a second about why I focused on homicide as opposed to other uh, measures of crime and safety, but that rate was similar both in terms of the percentage of homicides that occurred in different parts of the city, you know, and in the sort of the way that it compared to those other cities. So that divergence has happened in a really interesting way. Suddenly more people are getting killed in Chicago, but also the, the most dangerous parts of Chicago are getting more dangerous. Some parts are holding steady, but then interestingly, uh, if like me, you live on the North side, Things have been trending down, you know, the entire 20 years that I've lived here, and it creates this divergent sense of how safe is Chicago because, you know, I, I feel like on the north side, even if right now there's a perception that things are less safe, you know, that happens within the set of expectations that have evolved over the last 10 years, and it's completely different than what you see on the west side especially. Yeah. And that's important to point out. I think with anything, anytime we're looking at data, if you lump in the whole city, we saw that during earlier phases of the pandemic, particularly as vaccines were rolling out. It was one thing to say this percentage of the city is vaccinated, but it's quite another to start breaking that out by region because then you could see some major disparities really, really shaking out. But you said something I want to go back to, and that is uh, why you focused in particular on homicide. It's because the data is relatively consistently reported across jurisdictions and over time. So I, I think, you know, it's a very tricky part of where we are right now when I think lots of residents perceive that crime is up. I've heard, you know, a friend has suffered something or I was on the CTA and felt threatened or, you know, there, there's kind of that informal pulse temperature check. And I feel like we're high right there. The data doesn't necessarily support it. And that's just another thing that's true over time across jurisdictions is that the burglaries, larcenies, thefts of the world just don't always track with the consistency of reporting that you'd like. So other stuff like homicide, car theft is another one that's relatively sturdy. It's just those those numbers get reported. They're big deals, so they get reported. And, you know, one body is one body. You know, sadly, it's sort of a, a crass way to look at it, but that but that enters into the record in a way that does kind of enable some apples to apples comparisons. Okay. But the more violent areas of the city, we're seeing a surge there. We're seeing an uptick. What is driving that? That was the next key question. And the data itself points at a couple possible causes. And I also asked folks on the West side if they could identify or, the, or those who are engaged in violence intervention work, you know, what those causes looked like. And I don't know anything definitively, but I did find a couple things that sort of popped out of the stats. So one of them is firearms. The percentage of homicides that happen in Chicago via firearm is high relative to the rest of the country, relative to the national, national average, as well as to other big cities. It's also, you know, if you go back to so much of the data that I was opening up, CPD annual reports going back to the 70s and, you know, hand entering all of these things into my uh, spreadsheets to uh, to come up with this data. And if you go back, not even to the 70s, to the 2000s, people were getting poisoned. People were getting stabbed. <laughs> and now, now the homicides are just, they're just all with a gun. Um, 
in a way that is historically anomalous and also relative to the rest of the country. So that was one thing. And again, I'm not going to speculate about how causal that is relative to the overall number of homicides, but it popped out if you're looking for, you know, what about any of this data looks different in the, the 2010s and 20s or really over the last um, five or six years. I feel like 2016 was a big surge year for uh, gun violence. And so especially looking at this last five or six years compared to what came before. And the other is the number of arrests. And so this is an interesting one because of all the, the other cultural narratives around this. And, you know, we're talking about the evils of mass incarceration and things like that. And so again, without value judgment, but the, the numbers of arrests is dramatically down. I think the number is 83% overall. And some of those can be low level, what's called index crimes, this FBI list of the most significant violent and property crimes, you know, the number of arrests there is also down pretty significantly, especially like a substantial drop in each of the last two years. That's a higher amount than I probably would have guessed, which, which kind of leads to what about policing? Where does that fit in here? I mean, it, there's another place where it sometimes feels like kind of this endlessly circular debate about community relations and, and where all of that fits in. What did you see there? Yeah, so that's interesting. And it goes back to that arrest piece and what to make of it, because I even you know, looked into some of the academic research around this stuff. And you know, there's an immediate sort of red flag that goes up that more arrests does not necessarily translate to a safer city. But something that does seem correlative is police presence. You know, if they are around and visible in the community, ideally not always arresting people because, you know, those <laughs> offenses aren't happening, but that translates to good outcomes. And so to the extent that a fairly massive decline in arrests signals a decrease in engagement then I think you you know you begin to have something that like well are they are are police just less visible and that's what's setting the the table for this, and again I can't say concretely because I you know, but but that was definitely something that jumped out of the data. Yeah, well I don't know that anyone can say you know with with absolute certainty, but you did talk to some violence intervention advocates and people working in community resource capacities. Was there any kind of consensus that jumped out at you around solutions? Because there are so many, you know, systemic causes. And often I feel like the things that we call solutions are often really just kind of pointing to like a symptom of the larger issues, really. But but did anything emerge for you as you were talking with those folks? Yeah, it's a really interesting space in Chicago because Chicago was a national leader a decade, 15 years ago with this program called Operation Ceasefire uh, that was really a pioneer in this idea of taking older, you know, mostly guys who had been in a uh, in the gang life. One of the things I learned while reporting this story is that Chicago, in a way that doesn't necessarily track with every city, but the Chicago nonprofit world does not use the word gang. They favor street organization or something like that. So I'll, I'll throw that out as my caveat. But the outreach workers in the nonviolence um, world tend to be former members of street organizations. And that's also the way the Operation Ceasefire worked. So we had this model that had great early results, and then it sort of fell apart after a few years of its run. And so there's a new wave of CVIs, Community of Violence Interventions in Chicago, that is attempting to basically take what worked about ceasefire and address some of its shortcomings. So the work itself is really interesting, but to your first point about you know what 
do they see happening? It's it's interesting because they have this perspective. Lots of these outreach workers have been involved in one role or another in street conflicts for a long time. And so, for instance, with the gun piece, they can't say, yeah, I remember when more of these fights ended in fists instead of shots. And and then what about solutions? Were there any kind of like, this is really what we need to be working towards kind of statements that you heard from these sort of advocates? Something that really stuck out was the hopelessness that a lot of the street involved population feels, you know, that this isn't necessarily a proactive life choice that you were hoping to, to hold out forever, but there's just no other real option. And then you're stuck, you know, once you've, you know, once you're in level three of that life, it's just really hard to chart a different course. So several of the CVI interventions are, are focused on providing an alternative there, you know, a job training program combined with trauma-informed therapy. And I think I think that combination has all of those folks excited. It makes sense to me because you're talking about, you know, A, you need some rewiring of the decision-making processes that are enforced and reinforced in that sort of frontier justice model that you're growing up with and all the sort of pain and hurt from, you know, chances are if you're in that life, given the extraordinary homicide rates in some of those neighborhoods, this has touched you personally. So some of that rewiring work and then just the hopeful path out of like, you know, we're going to train you, we're going to place you in a job. And I heard it. I heard, I heard that people are, you know, sort of hopefully entering into that. So it's not inexpensive to put people through that, you know, a program like that, but it does seem to be producing statistically valid, you know, differentials from the control group. This is definitely, you know, that this, these programs are, have a lot of academic supports um, in that way, which I think was, will, you know, obviously help both in the fundraising process. And also again, Chicago has the potential if this all comes together to, uh, to serve as a national model. Again, if, if some of these programs are able to sort of prove out did you become aware of any programs in any other cities that that perhaps you know ha- has given them kind of a leg up or they've made some headway in some of these categories that perhaps Chicago could look to for for a you know for an example of of how to help people doing this work? I did poke around for that a little bit. I wouldn't say there's anything huge that jumped out, and part of that is Chicago is in a unique spot because. New York, for whatever reason, seems to have homicide under control. LA is a little bit difficult to analyze because the differences between LA City and LA County, but it's also lower. So Chicago is, sort of stands alone amongst the uh, the huge cities, and then honestly, in the Midwest, a lot of the other sort of slightly smaller, but you know, the Detroit's and St. Louis's and Milwaukee's are all struggling even more so with violence. So I, you know, there's again, there's some suggestion that parts of what Chicago is doing are working. It's just for whatever reason in this last few years, the very communities where you would most like to be making a a dent seems to be going the other direction. Sure. So politics aside and all the narratives associated with politics, all that aside, what do you feel like gets lost in the narrative the most when we talk about violence in Chicago? I'll start with, or I'll aim that specifically at gun violence because for other you know aspects of this data-driven story, it was hard to have a super clear picture about what's what lower-level crime looks like for reasons I addressed earlier. But I think I'll go back to that sense of 
hopelessness that's you know that's in those communities you know that that there just aren't alternatives you get sucked into this life almost by default and you know the intervention or the uh, because also you know the control groups for these intervention programs i was mentioning a few minutes earlier i mean they are targeting a demographic that by the time you enter this cohort, you know, you, I, I forget, but I saw some stats, you know, when one of those programs, you're at, our average person has already been jailed four times and has been shot three times. I mean, this is already an exceptionally at-risk demographic. So to talk about getting these neighborhoods to a place where they can thrive, we're not just talking about this cohort. You know, we'd, we would like to be reaching more people with more opportunities. So I guess that's it. These are not flourishing communities, and I feel like a holistic approach is really going to be the way out of here. You can't, I don't think, just as a policymaker or concerned citizens say, if we could just get the gun violence to stop, then everything would really take off in Mullendale, Garfield Park, Austin. So, again, that's a that's a big question, but the uh, the extent to which it all seemed tied together very much stood out to me. All right. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time talking this through today. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Mondelez pauses Twitter advertising. The Oreo maker's move follows the turbulent takeover of the social media platform by Elon Musk. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Every month, Cranes Forum goes deep to explore critical issues challenging Chicago and the region. On November 17th, we're excited to bring this editorial initiative from the page to the stage with our Forum Live event. We invite you to join us at the Marriott Marquis, where you'll hear different perspectives from a mix of influential leaders, both national and local. The event will kick off with a dynamic keynote conversation with Mayor Lori E. Lightfoot as we look at what lies ahead for the city that works. The opening segment will be followed by an impressive group of leading strategists diving into several important topics. Attendees will choose one of three breakout panel discussions after the opening keynote, including affordable housing, the future of behavioral health, or the state of local news and policy coverage. Learn more and secure your seat by visiting chicagobusiness.com slash forum live. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines reported, citing the latest report from the State Board of Elections, that as of Thursday afternoon, just under 12 percent of Illinois' registered voters, so roughly one in eight, have already cast a ballot in the 2022 general election. Voting continues to be particularly active in portions of the suburbs while relatively light in Chicago proper, although the city has picked up some, too, Hines notes. Overall, the turnout is about 9 percent above the comparable figure from the 2018 general election, which, like this year, had a governor on the ballot but not the presidency. An election board spokesperson told Hines that voting by mail has proven to be very popular, with just under 490,000 mail ballots returned so far ahead of the total 427,000 cast in 2018, and with several days of mail voting still yet to come. Suburban Cook County has the highest turnout so far, with just over 179,000 ballots cast as of Thursday afternoon, according to the board. DuPage County comes in at just under 90,000, and as Hines noted, the influence of some hot congressional and legislative races in the inner suburbs may be driving turnout. 
In comparison, Chicago's just under 169,000 is relatively light, though better than it was last week, and only a few thousand short of the comparable 2018 figure. Hines noted that the city represents a bit over 20 percent of the overall state population, but its turnout so far is only 17.4 percent of the statewide total. Allstate is in talks about moving its headquarters to Chicago after selling the majority of its suburban campus earlier this year, potentially returning to the city after it left decades ago. Bloomberg reported, citing people familiar with the matter, that the insurer has held discussions with Chicago officials about the potential move, but it has yet to announce a decision. Discussions are reportedly ongoing, and Allstate, which employs more than 7,000 people in Illinois, could still choose a different location entirely. It's also unclear how many people would be affected, since 75% of the company's workers work remotely. Bloomberg noted in reporting that moving back to the city would help Chicago make up for some high-profile corporate departures over the past year, including the decision by Citadel to relocate to Miami. It would also dovetail with a trend of companies leaving the suburbs and heading to the city in search of younger talent. Allstate sold the majority of its Northbrook campus for $232 million this year, and it also bought a building this year at 29 North Wacker that will reportedly house some workers, but is unlikely to become Allstate's headquarters, according to Bloomberg's reporting. In an interview, CEO Tom Wilson said the company was reevaluating what it would want from a new headquarters and that an ideal campus would foster collaboration and mentorship rather than languishing as an empty office full of computer monitors. Crane's Brandon Dupree reported that philanthropists Kathleen and John Schreiber have donated $25 million to Anne and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. The hospital said in a press release that the gift will establish the Schreiber Family Center for Early Childhood Health and Wellness, which will focus on children's early developmental years from birth to age five. The new center will also reportedly be part of the hospital's community-focused initiatives at the Patrick M. Magoon Institute for Healthy Communities, bringing together hospitals resources with community leaders to provide support for both families and their young children. Dupree also reported that the center seeks to help expecting parents by providing home visiting programs, health care and other social services, and that the hospital will also use a portion of the money to invest in community responsive programs and research to support newborns and very young children impacted by disinvestment and inequities, with a special focus on serving children from Chicago's west side. Dupree also noted in reporting that John Schreiber, a former Blackstone real estate executive, and his wife Kathleen made headlines back in March for donating a record $100 million to Loyola University Chicago to help fund scholarships for ethnically and racially diverse students. The donation was the largest individual gift in the school's history. Oreo maker Mondelez, a top 20 advertiser on Twitter at about $25 million in ad spend a year, is pausing its advertising on the social media platform following Elon Musk's takeover. That according to a report from the Wall Street Journal. Crane's Ali Marathi reported that Mondelez is among a growing list of companies pulling back on Twitter, as the platform's future under Musk appears uncertain. The journal reported, citing people familiar with the matter, that packaged food company General Mills, drugmaker Pfizer and Volkswagen's Audi brand are making similar moves to temporarily pause ad spend. According to data from advertising database company Pathmatics, the Mondelez quarterly advertising
advertising spend on Twitter may also seem on the small side after other big Chicago-based consumer-facing companies. Marathi reported that in the third quarter, Mondelez spent almost $14.6 million advertising on the platform. That compares to fast food giant McDonald's $3.3 million, $2.3 million from ketchup maker Kraft Heinz, and packaged food company ConAgra's $104,000. Candy maker Mars spent $2.3 million last quarter. Marathi also noted that advertisers are concerned that Musk doesn't have a plan in place to keep Twitter's brand safety standards up to par. There's also concern his stance on free speech will embolden trolls and hate groups. In recent days, Interpublic Group's Media and Marketing Solutions Division, Media Brands, advised advertisers to pause their spending on the platform temporarily as it goes through the ownership transition. Musk completed the $44 billion purchase of Twitter in late October. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's contributor, Steve Hendershot. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.